0: Let us turn to Acts chapter 1. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In those days Peter stood among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that your spirit would indeed breathe upon us, help us to see and understand and grasp the truths that are here, and that you would uh, conform us to uh, what is taught here, that you would shape and mold us into the image of Christ, that we would be truly his disciples and bring honor and glory to his name, and that his kingdom would come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people, even Christians sometimes, live their lives as if this life is all that there is. They think that having a good life is the whole point of their existence, and the world simply is, and they are simply trying to make the best of their situation. People like this live their lives without reference to God, uh, to what God is doing in the world. They don't think about God's ultimate purposes in the world. And then some people just think that God's purposes all revolve around them. They, in essence, are saying, as long as God serves my purpose, as long as he makes me happy, I'll pay some attention to him. Well, last week we saw that the Lord has a purpose, and he is fulfilling that purpose even though he is not bodily present among us. I talked about verse 1, and and it tells us there that Jesus continued his work on earth, the work that he began on earth, even after he ascended to heaven. He went up to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we said in the Apostles' Creed a few moments ago, and he's there, but he's still working, and he's working through his people through his disciples through his followers he said in the gospels that he would build his church and the book of acts shows us how he began to do that the book of acts records for us the early church and the formation of it and the building up of it and that work goes on even though jesus was not physically present the work goes on even today even though jesus is not physically present Jesus had some followers who dropped their personal agenda and got connected to Jesus' agenda. They were all about what he was doing in the world. And it's a question for us. Do we realize, as we look at our lives and the way that we live our lives, that Jesus is alive and he's continuing to carry out his work today? And he uses people like us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, just as he did in this era recorded for us in the Acts of the Apostles. You'll notice back then the church went from being this small band of fearful, fearful people uh, to uh, thousands witnessing for Jesus Christ with boldness. And Christianity spread from its beginnings in Jerusalem even to the ends of the earth. Now, we live in a time wherein the church is, is waning where we live and we find it difficult, and it's easy for us to get discouraged and fearful of the future, Uh, the future of our church, just like those disciples in the early days, behind locked doors, fearful for even their lives. Uh, And we can fall into just maintenance mode, just trying to maintain what we got. We made that point last week. But I know our desire is to, to experience that same kind of transformation that we saw the first disciples go through from being that fearful, small band to seeing the church really grow and, and uh, to spread out with boldness throughout, throughout the entire world. Now, after church on Sunday, I was really encouraged, and we had our fellowship lunch, and uh, many people came up and, and spoke about their desire to see the church grow. And there was brainstorming going on. How, what can we do uh, to see this happen? How, how can we, uh, you know, what ideas can we come up with in order to see the church really flourish. Now, thankfully, no one suggested having dancing girls in the worship service. Uh, that didn't happen, and I was pleased with that. There were a number of great ideas that were floated, floated out there, uh, and there seems to be a lot of zeal among us here at First Presbyterian Church to do something, to get active, to reach out into the world, into our community. And I know that some of you have already taken action to do that. And I was very encouraged by that response. So it makes it a little difficult to say what I want to say today because here uh, today I feel like we've got a group of people uh, here ready and willing to act, to do something, to forge into battle, to take that hill. And, and, I, and I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying as for a call to inaction, but a call to take measured action. So I'm going to say, let's wait a moment. Let's back up. You know, we want to go and charge, but we have to wait. There's some preparation. Not be inactive, but to to do first steps first, to understand our objectives and to to think of it kind of in the the way we might think of uh, uh, someone who is gung-ho to join the military. You know, we've got a lot of military folks here. Uh, A young man may be eager to enlist in the armed forces because the young man wants to act. He wants to fight for his country, for freedom, to make a difference in the world. And the recruiter loves to see this man show, show up at the recruiting office. But it's going to be a while before that young recruit is allowed to engage in actual combat. Now that certainly does not mean the young man will be inactive until he's called upon to go into battle. On quite the contrary, he's got a lot of work to do between now and that day. He's going to be very active in training and learning and discipline and even more than that. I've never gone through it myself. Many of you here would be able to testify to the process of what it takes to go from being a a gung-ho recruit to an actual soldier. But that early stage, the preparation stage, is vital, and it cannot be surpassed. Future combat victories depend upon that time of preparation, the first steps for the young soldier. It's true of the church as well. So my call is not a call to inaction, but a call to make sure that we are prepared for action. Because if we're not prepared for action, we probably will never take any action. So we're going to actively prepare for action. So the first question we must ask is, well, what are we preparing What action? What action are we preparing? So first, clear answer. Point number one: For what are we to prepare? Is to be a witness. We're called to be witnesses. The end of Luke's gospel, which it overlaps the beginning of Luke's uh, the Acts that Luke has written. So part one and part two, there's a little overlap. The end of chapter 24 of Luke, Luke records for us that Jesus said to them, to the disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he's calling upon them to be witnesses. They are to proclaim what they saw, what they heard, what they had experienced. But they didn't do that immediately. It's not until chapter 2 that they actually carried that out. There was a period of preparation to be witnesses. Now that may seem odd to say we're going to prepare to be a witness. I mean, if you're a witness to something, uh, you, you are just someone who has seen or experienced something. And you talk about it. You tell what you have seen or experienced. I saw it with my own eyes and here's what I saw. What kind of preparation goes into that? Well, think of it more like a a witness in a courtroom. There is not uh, any lawyer who is going to allow a witness to take the stand in a trial without first preparing that witness. And You've seen it on TV or, or the movies. A witness has to be prepared. They go over the questions that they're going to be asked. There's some some things that they should say, some things that they shouldn't say to help their cause, to help the case. And so that's true of being a witness for Christ as well. There's some preparation for being a witness. So what is that preparation? What do we do to prepare to be witnesses for Christ? Well, three things I've got here. First, as we look at the example of the disciples here in our text today, first we have to gain a conviction concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the first step. The first thing we see the disciples doing is that they, they receive proofs that he was alive. Look at verse 3. That tells us there that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. So 40 days' worth of... Of, of interaction with Jesus, with the risen Jesus Christ. And again, the end of Luke that overlaps uh, tells us of one of these encounters. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, "'Peace to you!' But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, "'Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see.'" For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So Jesus proves that he was alive. See, he's not just a ghost or a spirit. I mean, he actually takes a piece of fish and he eats. He eats with him on more than one occasion. Uh, Don't think of Jesus as some wispy figure like Casper the ghost uh, appearing through the walls. He is alive. He is flesh and blood, and they can see and touch his hands and his feet where the wounds were. But, But these proofs are more than just proofs that he is alive. And that's very important. It's a key question to ask here. What do these appearances by Jesus prove? Like I said, it does prove that he is alive, but it goes deeper than that. The fact that Jesus rose from the grave and is alive proves several things, and two main things I'll give to you. First, it pr- proves his divinity. Romans 1.4 tells us, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. It was proven that He was the Son of God. The resurrection proves it. He's not simply a great teacher, although He is a, a great teacher. This is God Himself, the ultimate King. The glory and importance of, of the mission shoots off the scale, because it's not just a human being's mission. This is God's mission that Christ is accomplishing, that Christ is giving to the disciples. Jesus' teaching and his work are not just one mortal's opinions and good ideas. These are the very words and works of God. So the disciples, seeing that he is indeed the Son of God, they're not just following a a man, they're following God. And that makes the mission all that more relevant and important. So, first of all, the the appearances by Christ prove that he was divine, that he's the Son of God. But it also proves his victory over death and sin. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a well-known passage, tells us that that, uh, death is swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus took death, and he stripped it of its stinger by paying the penalty of our sins on the cross. You know, you might pull the stinger out of a bee, and the bee won't hurt you anymore, because it's only got one stinger. Jesus took death and stripped it of its stinger by paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he stripped death of its power by fulfilling the law for us. Death no longer had power to condemn because the law was satisfied by Jesus Christ. See, Paul goes on and he says, If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The implication is that because Christ is raised, because he is alive, your faith is not futile. And you are not in your sins anymore because he's paid the penalty for him. And the, the sacrifice that he made is accepted by the Father and is it, and valid for cleansing us from all our unrighteousness and making us acceptable to God. Romans 4, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was raised so that we might be made right with God. His sacrificial death is our sacrificial death. His obedience to the law is our obedience to the law. Therefore, his, rex- his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Because he has cleansed us from sin and fulfilled all righteousness, we will be raised like he was raised. We will have eternal life. We, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. See, the proofs that he was alive gave the disciples... A conviction about the death and resurrection of Christ. It became the driving force in their lives. See, they they saw him, they spoke to him, they ate with him, they touched him, they understood that what he had told them that he'd come to do, he accomplished. It became their motivation. Do you have that conviction? Do you, do you grasp the glory of it? The ultimate life and death nature of it for you and everyone else around you? See, It's good news. It's great news. That's why it's called the gospel. That's what the gospel means. If the good news about Jesus is not good news to you, why would you share it with anyone else? There was a football game last night. A lot of football games last night. One in particular that affected... At least the emotions of some people here. There are some people in our congregation that are going to share the good news about the football game last night because they are Mississippi State fans, and they are going to say, "Did you hear? Did you see the game last night?" Did you? Now, the other folks, the LSU fans, it's not good news to them because they didn't end up winning, and they're not going to want to share it with anybody else. They're not even going to talk about it, and I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to talk about it either. That's not an insult to any LSU fans that might be behind me (laughs) or in front of me. But you see, the gospel, if it's good news, you automatically want to share it. Unless you've gotten that conviction about uh, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, you wouldn't want to share it with anybody else. You wouldn't have any reason to share it with anybody else if it's not good news to you. And it's a key it's key to preparing to be a witness. You, you've got to have something to share. So do you have that conviction about the death and resurrection of Christ? Secondly, we need to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. The disciples received teaching about the kingdom of God, it tells us here in, in verse 3. Not only did Jesus appear to them and offer many proofs, but during those 40 days he was speaking about the kingdom of God. You see there at the end of verse 3. Again, uh, Jesus opens to them. Uh, as he meets with them, we find in Luke 24 that he taught them things concerning himself from the Scriptures. Uh, he, he helped them understand what his mission was. And, and apparently they were having trouble uh, grasping it because in, in verse 6, they ask, are you going to restore Israel at this point? See, they were thinking locally. Well, Jesus is thinking globally. He's thinking bigger, and they had to come to an understanding uh, of the mission of Jesus and that he's the king of kings. He's not just going to set up a throne in Israel. He has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and, and now he's, he's loose in the universe doing his work. It's not just bringing back the glory to Israel. He's, he's affecting the entire entirety of creation. Do we understand that? Have we come to grasp the importance of that mission, uh, of what God is ultimately doing in the world, and have we connected to that? See, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what's going to happen. Have we in our hearts submitted to him as king? And are we serving him as our king? Not just a a local king or a small king, but the universal king, the ultimate king, the king of kings. And, And where do we fit in that kingdom? What's our part in it? How are we promoting it? So the disciples needed to understand that. They needed to understand the vastness of the mission that that Christ was calling them to. That was part of their preparation. It's part of our preparation as well. Thirdly, they came uh, to understand that they needed to live dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to live dependent on the Holy Spirit. The disciples received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them in verse 4 that, that uh, they needed to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit had an important part to play in the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus began his public ministry, what was the first thing that he did? He went to John the Baptist, who was baptizing people in the Jordan River, And he went and he was baptized there. And when he did, it tells us that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately after that, Luke in his gospel tells us that the Spirit led him into the wilderness. That's where he was tempted by Satan. And then Luke tells us that after that temptation, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and he began his ministry. And it tells us that a report, a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That same Spirit that, was, that filled and led and empowered Christ is what was promised to the disciples. It was, it was what was given to the disciples. They had to wait for it. They could not do anything until the Spirit empowered them. And the same is true of us. Now, the Spirit has been given to the church. We read about it in chapter 2. But we must continually recognize our dependence on the Spirit's power. Without Him, nothing happens. We can't save anybody. We can't convince anybody of their sin. It's the work of the Spirit. But the Spirit uses us in that, and if we understand that. uh, We go out with confidence, knowing that it's the Spirit's work. The Spirit uses those who make themselves available. You know, I, uh, Barrett and Brienne and their family, we were there about, oh, you know, uh, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, when we were, uh, go, moving overseas to do mission work, and the Lord accomplished something, not because I was so great or we were so clever, but we just made ourselves available to be used, and God did something. And now there's a church flourishing there. Uh, it wasn't because I'm such a great church planner or that uh, I had some certain keys to uh, to push the right buttons and make it happen. It, it, you know, it happened in spite of me. It happened because the Lord did it. And that's true of us. If we just step out, make ourselves available, make ourselves willing to be used by God, He, he uses us. He uses us. He does the work through us. Now think about this. Uh a fire. We, we built a bonfire out on the beach. The youth did it back whenever it was that we had the big bonfire. You needed a couple of things to have a bonfire. You got to have wood and a lot of it, and you got to have uh, fire. Now think of the first two things: the uh, the understanding of the gospel, uh, the, the the conviction of the cross and the resurrection, and uh, also think of the second thing: the Understanding of the kingdom of God, these are these are something of knowledge and experience in our hearts, but they're like the wood. The spirit is the fire. You know we can be all about the fire and we can be all about the wood, but unless you have both, you're not going to have a sustained blaze. We've got to have all these all these things to, to, for the Lord to work. Now, what is the evidence that we are prepared? Real quick, I I knew we would get to this point and we wouldn't have a whole lot of time, so I didn't spend a lot of time writing a lot about this. So, just briefly, what is the evidence that we are prepared or that we are in the process of preparing? Well, we worship. The end of Luke tells us that after Jesus ascended, it says that they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They were continually blessing God. They were constantly there. And the word for blessing is eulogize. Uh, The Greek word is eulogio. Uh, We get our word eulogy from it. And you know what a eulogy is? It's a speech at a funeral in praise of someone. You're saying, you know, Joe was a great guy. You know, he loved his family, he worked hard, you know, whatever we might say about someone at a eulogy. It's praising, it's blessing, it's saying something great about it. So they were always there. Uh, They were excited about God. They were praising Him and worshiping Him in the temple. Well, witnessing is simply an extension of worship. We're just changing the audience. You know, I have often say at the beginning of worship when we gather here from Sunday to Sunday that, that you're not the audience and you're here listening to me. God is our audience and we're all worshiping him. Well, uh, witnessing is, you know, like we all sit here and we say God is great and we're telling God that he's great and we're rehearsing how great he is to him and that's, that's praise to God and pleasing to God. Well, witnessing is just saying God is great. And look at what God has done. It's the same thing. We're just a different audience. They were excited about God. They were ready to go. And it was shown because they were excited about worshiping God. And they wanted to share it with others. Devotion to prayer. Tells us in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting. They were occupied diligently with prayer. They paid persistent attention to prayer. They held fast to praying. See, God has a mission for his, Well, God doesn't have a mission for His church. He has a church for His mission. Christopher Wright says that. He has a church for His mission. And we want Him to accomplish His mission, so we ask Him to accomplish His mission. It's His mission. And we need His Spirit to empower us. And so we pray and pray and pray prayer is not a an indicator that we're we're not doing anything prayer is the first step Pray, prayer prayer's the most important step because we rec- we're recognizing that we're dependent upon the spirit to do the work lord help us is what we're asking and we organize they put an organization in place they had a leader they had an election just like we're about to do in a few minutes they they put leaders in place they had a structure and god often uh l- well Not often. Always works through leaders. Uh, The people we read about in the Bible were leaders. They were leaders in the church, leaders in their families, leaders in the school. God needs people to step forward and lead. And that's what they're doing there at the end of of chapter 1. Putting the organization in place. Having people in place to carry out the work that God has for us to do. Do we have those things? Conviction of the gospel? Are we concerned about the kingdom of God? Are we Praying for the power of the Spirit. These are the things we need to do to be prepared for what the Lord has for us to do. Let's pray.